Okay, well, let's go into the teaching for today. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 28 today. We are going through a series on the life of David, and we are almost done with uh, the book of 1 Samuel. This is a series that we started last year. We took a break about halfway through 1 Samuel, then we jumped back in here. Uh, we're going to be actually finishing 1 Samuel before Christmas. We're going to have our Christmas series, and then we're going to go into 2 Samuel uh, next year. So we're going to be continuing right along next year uh, after Christmas. It's been a really, really great uh, story, uh, a lot of lessons learned going through the life of David, and as we're about to, going into the kingdom and reign of David. All right? So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 28. I'll give you a moment to find it in your Bible if you're going to follow along there. If you don't have your Bible with you or you're having a hard time finding it, that's okay because we'll have the words on the screens next to me, so you'll be able to read along there. Once again, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 28. I'm going to start reading in verse 3 once you get there. All right, so... In 1 Samuel chapter 28, and starting in verse 3, it says, By this time, Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city. And Saul had removed the mediums and the spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night and Saul said, consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting up a trap for me to get killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, and then she asked Saul, why did you deceive me? You were Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, Since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. 
and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. The woman came over to Saul, and she saw that he was terrified and said to him, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let me set some food in front of you. Eat it, eat, and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. He refused, saying, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her house, and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. She served it to Saul and his servants, and they ate. Afterward, they got up and left that night. So if you were here last week, you remember how we read this, this really incredible, somewhat, uh, well, not somewhat, this really incredible, shocking story about David. And I talked to you about how there's often times where we come to Scripture and we read passages that confuse us, confound us, that we say, uh, that, that, are, that are hard to understand, and we say, what in the world are we supposed to do with this? And so we covered a chapter like that last week in 1 Samuel chapter 27, where we looked at David and his actions, wherever he was living in Philistia. And, you know, you might have been thinking to yourself, whew, okay, that hard part was out of the way. That's certainly what I was thinking to myself <laughs> this week after I got through Samuel 27. I was like, all right, whew, thank you. Now let's see what's next. Oh, Saul summons up the spirit of Samuel by a medium. Good. <laughs> right, so here we are again with another one of those challenging passages. But look, and, and I, I really mean the same thing that I told you guys last week, and I mean it as very much today. This is one of the reasons that I love the Bible. This is one of the reasons that I love the Bible, because it does not sugarcoat life for us. It does not, um, it does not insult our intelligence by removing the hard parts as though, we, as, as though they're beyond us or above us so that we cannot understand them. Uh, it is not afraid of challenging us, of confronting us, sometimes even offending us, right? And, and making us uh, really come to terms with the scriptures, right, with what it says and with the God who is behind them. This is one of the beautiful things about scripture. When we come to different passages where, uh, where we are really challenged by them, like I said before, it's one of the things that makes me, uh, that makes me not just love and appreciate, but also uh, encourage my faith and strengthen my faith in the scriptures, is that I very often have to wrestle with them. Not just in stories like this where there's strange things happening, right? But in other passages where it confronts my sin. In other places in scripture where it challenges the way that I've been living or some assumption that I've been holding, and now I've got to reckon with uh, my, my life with what I wrote there, with, with not what I wrote, with what is written there, right? In one sense, if we can't deal with just hard stories like this, where we got to figure out what does the story mean, then there's no way you're going to be able to deal with the much harder portions of Scripture, which are things like Jesus saying, love your enemies, right? Which are the portions where we're confronted in our sin, where we're challenged in our weak faith, right? Where, where some of the, the values that we hold dear don't line up with the Lord's values, and so we are challenged to let go of those. It's a good thing that we are from time to time offended by or confronted with Scripture, because you know what? It's in those moments, perhaps more than any other, where you are confronted with the real God who is there. 
with the real God who is there and who speaks to us. There would be no chance at us having a true relationship with God, a, 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 a relationship that we knew was real if we were never confronted by that relationship, if there was never uh, times whenever we were challenged to change, to think differently, to live differently. If the Bible only ever confirmed what we already thought, if it only ever affirmed the advice that we already had, how do we know that there's anything real there? If God never challenged you, how would you know that, that he was actually there? If, he, if God just seemed to believe all the same things that you believe and affirm all the same things that you affirm, how could you ever say you have a true relationship with him? If that was the kind of relationship that me and my wife had, where she never challenged, never challenged me, always agreed with me, right? Always uh, thought the same things that I thought, loved the same things I loved, hated the same things I hated. Could you say that I had a real relationship with her? Because in real relationships, there's times whenever there's, there's conflict, right? There's times whenever there's disagreement. And it's during those times that you really learn one another and you grow deeper in relationship. And it's the same thing with God. And so I say all that to say this, that we shouldn't shy away from hard passages in scripture, that we shouldn't be afraid of them, but we should see it as an opportunity from our Lord. Let's dig in, right? Let, let's lean in, embrace it, and see what God has to teach us if we would come to it with an attitude of humility. And so that's what we're going to do today. Because what this story of uh, Saul going to this medium, summoning up the spirit of Samuel, it actually has a very, very important uh, lesson for us to learn. It's teaching us about the dangers of persistence in sin. That's what we're going to be looking at today, the dangers of persistence in sin. We're going to ask a couple of questions. The first one is, why is Saul in this situation? Why is Saul, the king of Israel, in this situation that he's in? What is the effect of his choices? And then what is the remedy? So why is Saul in this situation? What is the effect of his choices? And then what is the remedy? So just to give you a picture of the context here. So last week we looked at, uh, so there's this final conversation between uh, Saul and David. uh, After the conversation, David says, you know what, Saul is never going to give up his pursuit of me, his uh, murderous intentions with me, so it is uh, good for me to go into the land of the Philistines. So he goes to the city called Gath. He makes this uh, kind of treaty with the king there, and then he's living this sort of... um, deceiving lifestyle uh, by raiding different Philistine tribes, but telling the king of, uh, of Gath, Achish, by telling this Philistine king that he is actually just raiding southern Judah. So to, to catch up on that, go catch up on my sermon last week. Okay, so, so David is living in this situation uh, where he is kind of acting like a double agent in a sense, right? He is still faithful to Israel, but the Philistines think that he is completely turned, that he is theirs now. And we... It, we and then uh, at the end of that story, in the first two verses of chapter 28, Achish comes to David and he says, hey, we're going to war with the, with the Israelites. Uh, suit up. You're coming with us. And then the story pauses there. The story pauses there and then goes to Saul here. It's similar to if you've ever watched a movie or a TV show where there are two different storylines happening at the same time and one is paused, you see what happens in a sense, and then you go and see what was happening on this other storyline at the same time, and then those two storylines end up converging. That's what's happening here in chapters 27, 28, and 29. Okay, we see what's happening with David, and then it pauses at the Philistines saying, we're going to war. And then we see what is happening with Saul as he discovers that the Philistines are coming, and he sees that they have arrived. 
So as we go on next week, it's going to jump back to what happens with David, okay? So it kind of, it pauses there, leaves us in suspense in, in terms of what's going to happen with David to show us what's happening with Saul. Okay, so that's what's happening here with Samuel. Samuel, in the book, we're getting these different storylines that are going to converge together. And so Saul gets word that the Philistines have arrived. They are going, they are coming in full force this time. Saul has had many different skirmishes and battles with the Philistines, but they've come in their full force this time, and it makes him terrified by what he sees, right? Early in, the, in those verses, it says that he saw them, he was afraid, and it made his heart pound, right? He, he's, he is experiencing a great stress, anxiety over the Philistine might that he saw. And so what does he do? He does what he has always done. He does what the, what the Israelite kings would do, was they would try to go to the Lord to seek some sort of guidance. He's about to go into battle, so he's trying to get guidance on what lays ahead. Is there victory before us or defeat? Should I go to war? What should I do? And so Saul starts to try to find guidance on this, but he can't. He can't find any guidance. In verses 3 through 6, it tells us that, that he's afraid, and so he's trying to figure out what's ahead of us. What am I supposed to do? And he can't find any answer. Why not? Why can't he find any answer? Well, here's why. It says that the Lord didn't speak to him in dreams. It says there's no Urim. That, is, that, was, a, uh, that was this, uh, this cloak that the priests would use whenever they would pray to seek the Lord's guidance. So, so what that means is there's no priests, and it says there's no prophets. But why? Why are there no priests? Why are there no prophets? Why, why is even God not speaking to Saul? Why is he not even giving him dreams or such? Well, if you've been with us in this series for a while, or if you've read 1 Samuel before, I'll remind you, several chapters before this, Saul, in a moment of rage, slaughtered all the priests. He killed the whole priesthood. He went to war against his own people by slaughtering all, all the priests. Only one of them escaped with the Urim, right, that, that uh, cloak that they would use whenever they were trying to seek God's guidance, and went to David. So no, that's with David, and the only surviving priesthood is with David. So why are there no priests to give him guidance? Because of what Saul did, because of his own sin, because of his own evil actions. Why are there no priests? Uh, no priests. Why are there no prophets? Well, once again, Saul has silenced all the prophets. He didn't welcome them into his court. He weren't listening to them. Even whenever Samuel was still alive, he wasn't listening to him. He wasn't obeying him. For a time, even Saul himself was a prophet. God was speaking to him. But due to his sin, he uh, was no longer being used as a prophet. God was not speaking to him. So once again, because of his own sinful choices, there are no prophets. There are no priests. There are no prophets. And then, because he had been distancing himself from the Lord over the years of ruling like a tyrant, right, of ruling as though the kingdom were ultimately his and not God's, of, of forgetting that though he was king over Israel, he was still uh, a, a servant of the Lord, Right? He was not king over God. And over the years of his sin, he has distanced himself from God. So now even God is not speaking to him. So here he is needing guidance. He's groping around in the dark, right, trying to find how he is supposed to go, what direction he is supposed to seek. And he cannot find any consolation. He cannot find any direction in the question. Why? Because of his sin. Because of his persistence in sin over the years, because of his persistence in using the kingdom as though it is his own, and the throne as it is his own, not submitting to and obeying the law of God. Because of that, that is why God is not speaking to him. There are no priests and there are no prophets, and he is left groping around in the dark like a blind man. This is why. This leads us to our first big point. 
Persistence in sin leads to the most hopeless misery. Persistence in sin leads to the most hopeless misery. We see Saul in a very, very miserable, really almost pitiful situation here at the end of his life. This is one of the, this is one of the last chapters before we're going to see the death of Saul where he, is, uh, where he dies in battle. And it's a pitiful scene, right? Saul, the first king of Israel, the one who had been uh, hailed and cheered, right, that, they, that Israel put their hopes in, and who started out so great, who started out so powerfully, who, like I said, was a king and was a prophet. He was, he was acting like a shepherd over Israel. Now he is here in this miserable situation where he is not just about to go into battle, right, which is bad enough, a, a battle against a superior force. But what's even worse than that, what makes this situation truly miserable and hopeless is that he's going into it abandoned by God. He's going into it without, without the hand of the Lord on him, without God's eyes watching over him. Whenever you read the Psalms, do you notice how whenever uh, the psalmist, whether it's David or the other psalmist, they are going through something in their life, whether they are dealing with opposition, enemies, or something else, they are disillusioned. Their hope is this. They always say their hope is that the Lord's eyes are on the righteous, that they say things along the lines of the Lord watches over the righteous, or they are, they are in his hand. Right? That was their consolation. Whenever I go into battle, because God loves me, he's watching over me. And if he's watching over me, everything's going to be okay. And that would give them the hope and courage they needed to go into battle. You know, um, sometimes at home, we'll tell, we'll tell my son, hey, go and get whatever out of the kitchen. Go get whatever out of your, your bed, whatever it might be, your blankie or your cup, or, or go throw this away. But the kitchen's dark. There's no lights on. And so he's nervous too, right? And I say, I say, son, go throw it away or go go wherever it is. I'm going to watch you. I'm going to watch you. I'm watching you go. And he says, okay. And he gets up and he goes into the dark knowing that I'm standing there watching him. And he gets his blankie and he comes back or he gets his toy, his cup. He throws something away because he knows if dad is watching over me, then I'm going to be okay. I can do this. And in the same way, in Scripture, we see that whenever it says that the eyes of the Lord or the hand of the Lord is with the righteous, that that was their hope. And one of the most beautiful blessings for God's people, one of the sweetest consolations that we can put our hope in, Saul doesn't have. There's no one watching over him where he goes into the dark now. You see, this is a truly um, miserable situation. And friends, this is where persistence in sin brings us. Believers, let me specifically address you, if you are a Christian and following after God, you might be going through a really, really difficult time in your life, whether there are just certain ways that your life itself, relationships, uh, or, or a career, whatever else, are just really in a mess. Or maybe you're going through a time in your life where you're going through spiritual dryness, you're not experiencing the presence of God, you're being, you, you feel like you're, you're, you're not growing, or whatever else it might be. It might the situation might be that your life is in such a mess right now or that you are just so miserable simply because you have not been obeying God. Simply because you have not been obeying God and you have been persisting in disobedience. You have not been submitting yourself to his word and living by it, applying it to your life. No, if you are in Christ and you are saved, you're a Christian, I am not saying that God has abandoned you. 
God does not abandon those whom he has justified, okay? You're still the Lord's, but you are experiencing the absence of, the, of God's presence, right? You're not experiencing the consolation of the Spirit because you are grieving the Spirit and you are grieving the heart of God by persisting in your sin, whatever your sin might be. And maybe that's why your life is a mess. Maybe that's why you're, you're miserable right now. Because that sweetest of all consolations to know, you know, even if I am going through a hard time, God's eyes are, are upon me and I'm in his hand, even that you don't have right now, maybe it's because you are allowing all of these roadblocks and hedges and dividing walls of sin to come between you and God. God is not abandoning you. He's there. He wants that reconciliation. But you just keep going on in your sin. Now, listen to me. I am not saying that the key to fixing your life and, 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 or that every time you start to obey, everything in life is going to go well. I'm not saying that because there are times in the Christian life wherever you obey, you're doing your best, you're living by faith, and life is still hard. That is very, that is very much true. However, it is also a, a, a truism of Scripture that whenever we obey, life typically tends to go better. You read this all over the Proverbs. In the Proverbs, it tells us over and over again about how obedience leads to life. Obedience leads to living a, a better life. In Proverbs 21, 21, it says, The one who pursues righteousness and faithful love will find life, righteousness, and honor. You see, there is just one of those examples. And if you go read the Proverbs, you'll see so many more. That tells, again, that those who fear the Lord, that those who live by his wisdom, those who obey him, those who pursue, like it says here, righteousness, those who follow his law, you can read this all over scripture, will find life. Right? Things will tend to go better for them. This is a truism of scripture. What, I, what that means is by it's a truism is that it is not a guaranteed rule, but typically in the way that life goes, this is how it works out. And I think that that might be the case for us. So often you're going through a hard time and you think, you know, I need, I need this situation to change. I need this door to open. I need this relationship to either end or, 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 or the other person to change. Whereas the real solution to the problem is right in your heart. It's just that you have been persisting in sin. You need to quit allowing those hedges and dividing walls and roadblocks between you and the Lord in your life. Quit grieving his heart and repent of your sin. But what if you are living in obedience and you're still suffering? Saul's life here is a warning that there's still something even worse than that. Like I said before, it is possible that you can be obeying pursuing righteousness, but you're still going through something hard in your life. Okay, that, the, the gospel does not promise us smooth sailing. If you've been a redeemer, you've heard me say that many times. But even if you're going through a, a hard time of suffering, a trial, or you're going through a wilderness, and you're doing your best to hold on to faith, this story still shows us that there is something far worse than even that. Because even if you're going through a trial, you still have the Lord. You still have his loving presence with you. You still have him watching over you. You don't have priests and prophets because you're surrounded by priests, right? You have, you have the church to lean upon. You have your, your fellow members and Christians who can encourage you, pray for you, and so on. 
What Saul shows us, he's a warning sign that even there's something far worse than even obeying and yet still suffering. What that does for us is it places our burdens uh, in, a, in their proper context, and it makes them appear lighter sometimes. And so even if you are obeying and still suffering in your life right now, going through a hard time, place those burdens in their proper context. Compare those burdens that you're going through with Saul's life and understand, okay, well, I'm still blessed. Okay, God is still with me. He still loves me. Okay. So what is the effect of Saul's choices? Saul's made these choices to, in, to indulge in his sin, to follow after his own way, reject God, reject God's law, uh, again and again and again, over years now, over decades. And what is the effect of that? What does Saul decide to do since he cannot find any guidance? The, the, passage that I read opened, uh, the passage that I read to you opened with telling us, reminding us that Samuel had died and that earlier in Saul's reign, uh, probably at the guidance of, of Samuel, he had banished all of the mediums and spiritists, all the uh, uh, diviners, right? People who would do any kind of uh, trying to communicate with the dead, trying to summon spirits, uh, seances, any of those sorts of things. He had banished all these people from Israel. It starts out by telling us that, okay? That's what Saul had done earlier in his life. But now that he is here, after years of persistence and sin, he is in this desperate situation and he cannot find any guidance. What does he decide to do now? What does this desperate situation drive him to? He says to his men, go and find me a medium. Go and find me a medium. Now, supposedly all the mediums have been banished, right? Which would mean that, uh, that they hadn't been using any mediums, right? But whenever they saw ask his men, they tell him, oh yeah, there's one in indoor." So that kind of gives you a clue here that maybe they weren't following their own rules as strictly as they ought to because they knew where one was and they took him right to her, right? But this is what Saul does. So he says, take me to her. So they go to her and we have what is a truly bizarre scene. We have this extraordinarily bizarre scene. Some, there, there's nothing other like, uh, there, there are no other uh, stories or episodes like this in Scripture, what we read here, where Saul, he disguises himself. What that means is he took off his robe. Remember, Saul wore a robe that, that signified him as the king. He takes it off. He disguises himself. They go to her, and he asks for her to summon up for him the spirit of Samuel uh, who had died. She is suspicious, right? She knows that something is up because she says, well, you know that Saul the king had banished the prophets, he, he, uh, not the prophets, the, 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 the sorcerers, uh, the mediums. He, he outlawed this kind of work. So are you trying to set me up in a trap? And he tells her, no, no, no. And he actually swears by the Lord as he is uh, defying God. He swears by God. He says, you're going to be fine. Just I, I need you to do this for me. So she summons up the spirit of Samuel and she screams whenever she sees Samuel come up because to her, it confirms that, okay, this is a trap. This is Saul. This is Saul because only Saul would have the authority, would be a, a, a person important uh, enough, have the power to make this spirit of Samuel come up. That, that's her thinking. And so she screams because she thinks it's a trap. Saul says to her, no, 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 it's okay. And then he has her communicate with Samuel to try to figure out what is going to be the result of this battle. He finds out his very bad news. He finds out that him and his sons, essentially his household, is going to be wiped out in this battle. So we have this extraordinarily bizarre scene, 
okay? And, and it could be easy for us to get lost in some of the details of it, and, and, if you, and I'm sure you have questions. So come to me with your questions afterwards. I don't want us to get lost in, in the details of this passage because I want us to try to focus on what I think is the main point, which is that, remember, this passage is trying to teach us about what happens whenever we persist in sin. It's teaching us about the danger of persistence in sin, and so it's trying to show us what happens when you do. What happens when you do? What happens wherever you live a life persistent in sin? And I think that this is what the passage is trying to show us. There's this common thread running through it, this, this emphasis that you might miss if you don't look for it, but an emphasis on fear, an emphasis on fear. Earlier in the passage, it says that Saul was afraid. His heart was, was pounding, right? And so that then leads him to go and find this medium. Then the medium herself is also afraid. Where she sees Samuel, it says that she shrieks, she screams, she is terrified, right? And then after uh, they, they hear from Samuel, Saul gets this word. It, at the end of the passage, it says that he is even more terrified now. So there's this common thread running through it. If you look at the key words in the passage of fear, and I think what it's trying to show us is this. It's trying to show us that whenever we are not Whenever we are persisting in sin and therefore not living by the Lord's direction and guidance, then we will be living by fear. If we are not being directed by God's guidance, if we are not being directed by the Lord's guidance, then we will be directed and guided by fear. Once again, fear seems to be the theme and connection running through this. And every time it talks about fear in this passage, there's a connection with what the person saw. So early, it says that uh, Saul saw the Philistines and was greatly afraid and his heart pounded. The medium sees Samuel and shrieks. She's terrified. After Saul sees, hears from Samuel as well, he is terrified there. So there's this connection between what they see and then the fear that they experience, which I think, once again, underscores for us the kind of life that you will be living, right, hopefully... Hopefully not with mediums all right, or sorcerers, but, but still, the kind of life that you'll experience if you are persisting in sin and not living uh, in, in relationship with God and by living by his presence, which is that you will be driven by fear, and especially fear in what you see. And so, this is the second big point. Persistence in sin produces fear-driven choices. At every stage of this chapter, Saul's decisions are driven by his fear. Why? They're not being driven by faith in God. They're not being driven by having a direction from God and then following that. Instead, he only has his fear. And so that is what he follows after. You see, have you ever been in the dark with no sense of direction? Like, have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night or, or been, been up at night, you turn the lights off, all of a sudden it's just pitch black in your house? And, and for a second, you kind of lose where you're at. Have you ever been in a situation like that before? You know what I'm talking about, where all of a sudden you're in the dark, you have no sense of direction at all. You're kind of lost at where you are, and so you start feeling around. That is the kind of situation that Saul is in here, spiritually speaking. He is in pitch black. He has no sense of direction. He has, he, he has no sense of equilibrium or where he's at, right? And so if you've ever been in that situation before, you remember what it feels like? For a second, it's scary. That's why children are afraid of the dark. For a second, it's scary, right, to not know where you are, to not know what's around you. 
to kind of forget what, which way was I, am I supposed to go? Am I about to run my nose into a wall or am I about to walk into my bedroom? Right? For a sense, it's kind of scary. And so you walk slowly, breathe your hands out because of that fear. Well, that is what Saul is experiencing on an extraordinary uh, and powerful spiritual level. Lost in the dark, no sense of direction. And so he feels that kind of fear that you get in the dark uh, very, very acutely and strongly here. Because when you don't have the consolation of God's presence and direction, since you have been persisting in your sin, you will be controlled by what you see. Like I said before, there's a connection in this passage between what they see and then their fear. They see this and it drives them to fear. And because whenever we are not living by God's consolation, then we're going to be controlled by what we see and how what we see brings, uh, causes fear in us. You might be controlled by what you see in the news and in the world. How many of us, our emotions throughout the week and throughout the day, go up and down along with the news cycle? We hear bad news, and, then, and so we're, we're driven to fear. We're, we're scared. We hear good news, wonderful. Our hopes are on cloud nine. And then we hear bad news again. We go down. Right? We're, we're controlled by the news cycle. We're controlled by things going on in the world, and we wrestle with stress and anxiety over all these things that we have no control over. Right? being controlled, once again, by what we see with our eyes because we're not living in the constellation of God's guidance. Controlled by what we see in the world or maybe what we see in our neighborhood, maybe what we see in our homes, what we see in our families and relationships. Sometimes we are driven by the fear of what we see in our bank account, right? Or what if we look at other numbers? And so then that drives us to make fear-driven choices as well. Right? And to, to live in anxiety, not going to God for consolation, but once again, we're just being controlled by the things that we see. Let me, t- let me say this one too. Sometimes we are controlled and we're driven to fear about what we see in our heart. I think it's interesting that we get, that the passage tells us that Saul was afraid and his heart was pounding. That it, just, it, it, it alerts our attention to what was going on in Saul's heart here. Has your heart ever pounded before? Whenever your heart is pounding, it's usually because there are, there are things being said inside of you, right? You're saying things to yourself, or you're, you're thinking through different scenarios. You're thinking, how is this situation going to play out? How is this going to play out? Or maybe you're, you are, are realizing some weakness in yourself. Sometimes we are, are, are simply driven to fear, not even so much by what's going on in the world around us, but, but simply by the things that our heart is telling us that we are telling ourselves by what we see in our heart. Once again, in all of these examples, if we're not being controlled by God, if we are instead living in persistence and sin, and we are separated from him, our decisions will be controlled by fear and fear in the things that we see, whether out in the world or even inside of ourselves. And so what is the remedy? What is the remedy? What are we supposed to do if we find ourselves in a Saul-like position, if you are recognizing, Christian, that you have been living in persistent disobedience, that you have been living in sin, you know that you are not as close to God right now that you could be, that you should be, because you've been putting up those roadblocks and those wedges between you and him. Or maybe you're here and you're just exploring Maybe you're not quite a Christian yet, but you can, even, you can still look at your own life and you, you know where your life doesn't match up with what God desires for your life. And you're starting to wonder, hmm, 
Could it be that the things I'm experiencing in my life and some of the, the troubles and the messes that I'm going through in my life are because I am separated from God? If that is you, if that is us, what's the remedy? What do we do? At the end of the story, Saul has a type of Last Supper. They, they slay the fatted calf, they have unleavened bread, and they eat this together. They finally get him to eat this Last Supper, and it says that he gets up and he goes away into the night. In a sense, Saul has now entered metaphorically, symbolically, death already. He has not physically died yet, but we see him metaphorically entering the realm of death. He has already gone down and dined in the realm of the dead, right? By going to this medium's home, by, by, uh, by uh, working with her to bring up Samuel, and then by dining this feast in her house. He has already, had, he has already dined at the table of the dead, and now he goes off into the night at the end of the passage. And that is, in a sense now, where we, we see the end of Saul. Why does he enter into the realm of death at the end of this passage? Why? Here's why. Because poor Saul, he forgot. He didn't repent. He didn't repent. What is the, the remedy for our persistence in sin and the, and the messes that we go through in our life because of our persistence in sin and because our lack of consolation that we should be experiencing in God? Or maybe you are, you are still being burdened by the weight of your guilt of sin. You need to be free from that burden. You need to be free from that guilt, from that shame. What is the remedy for all of these issues? The remedy is repentance. Repentance. Here's the last big point. Repentance from sin leads us into freedom from fear. Repentance from sin, from that persistence in sin, leads us into freedom from fear. How is that? Here's how. Here's how repentance can lead us into that freedom. Because similarly to Saul, Jesus had a last supper as well. Jesus had a last supper where he ate meat and he ate unleavened bread along with his men. And Jesus got up from that last supper and he went into the night as well. After his last supper, he went into the night. He entered into the realm of death. But Jesus' last supper and him entering into, into the night was not due to his own sinful choices. Instead, he told us at the dinner why he was having that last supper and entering into the night. He raised up the, the they had the, the lamb on the table that had been slaughtered. And he said to them, you know, this lamb was not slaughtered uh, to represent our, our uh, ancestors' pain and suffering and to remind us how their sins were atoned for. That lamb was slaughtered to point you to me, who is going to be slaughtered for your sin. He took up the bread and the cup, and he says, this bread that was broken, once again, this doesn't represent our ancestors' pain at the Passover, the Passover meal they were eating. This represents my body that is going to be broken for you. He held up the cup, the, the wine, and he said, this doesn't represent the blood of that lamb. This represents my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. You see, he was telling them and he was telling us why he was entering into the night. Because Jesus could not enter into the night because of his own sin. He was sinless. He lived the life of obedience that we ought to have lived, the life of obedience that Saul ought to have lived, the life of a kingly obedience that Saul should have been. He's telling them and us in the supper, my body was, is being broken and my blood is being shed. I am entering into the night for you. Jesus entered into the night that we all deserve to go into. 
Jesus entered into the realm of death. Jesus experienced the punishment from God that we deserve to experience for our persistence in sin, for our rebellion against him, for our trying to be the own kings and queens and rulers of our own lives, for living by what we think is right and by our own rules rather than in submission to God, our true king, and living by his law in obedience to him. We should have been slaughtered. It is our bodies which deserve to be broken and our blood being shed. But Christ experienced it for you. He took your place. The place of judgment that you deserve to stand in, he stood in it. The cross that I deserve to die on, he died on. And because Jesus entered into the night on our behalf, we have this great promise and invitation held before us, which is this. Your blood doesn't have to be shed. Your body doesn't have to be broken. You don't have any cleaning up of yourself that you have to do. You don't have to make yourself right. You don't have to make yourself presentable. All you must do is this, repent. What that means is is just turn away. It means you've been following after your sin. Just turn away from it now and turn to him who paid the penalty for your sin. And if you repent and turn to him, if you repent and look at him and say, say, he did pay the penalty for me. If you look at him and say, he is now my king. If you look at him, you say, he paid the debt that I never could have paid. Well, then your sins will be washed away. Saul entered into the night because he didn't repent. But friends, you do not have to enter into that night. You do not have to enter into that night because we have the opportunity now, today, to repent. What does repentance mean? Like I said before, it means turning away. Simply defined, repentance means forsaking our sin, leaving it behind. Repentance means, let me give you three elements of repentance. It means a change of our mind. Uh, whenever we, the Greek word for repentance primarily means that. It means a changing of our mind. Whereas before our mind was controlled by sin, uh, bent towards sin, loving sin, now we have a change of our mind. Our mind turns away from it to God's word, to, to the person of God, to, to his love and his grace. And that is where our minds are now oriented towards. It means that, but it also means a change of our heart. Whereas once before our heart loved our sin, now our heart loves God. Where before our heart once looked to all the things in the world that might fill it with peace, consolation, love, satisfaction. Now our hearts look to God for our peace, for for love, for consolation. And then this change of heart and turning of uh, this change of mind and turning of our hearts leads to a changing in our life. It leads to a changing in our life. It means now that you live differently that you do not continue on in the same patterns, behaviors, sinful choices, and idol worship that you did before. A change of mind that leads to a turning of the heart towards our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, then changes your life. John, in 1 John chapter 1, challenges us to examine ourselves to see if we are walking in the light with Christ or if we are walking in the darkness of our sin. He said this, he said, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we... One of the most beautiful words in scripture, friends, listen to this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, that means just, 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once again, what do you have to do to walk in the light, to have your sins forgiven, to not have to enter that night and enter the realm of death that you deserve? He tells us there, just confess your sins. Confess your sins and turn away from them. There's no sacraments for you to perform. There are no religious rules that you have to follow. There's no moral accomplishments that you need to be able to put under your belt or add to your resume. There's no proving yourself to God. Here's what he says. You just have to confess. That seems mind-boggling to us, that that's all it would take for God to forgive us. Yes, because Christ paid the penalty. So he goes on to to blow your mind even more. He says, all you have to do is confess. And if you confess your sins, you might think to yourself, but I've got a lot. That's me. I've got a lot. I've I've got some really bad sins. You might say, you don't know my past. Some of you guys might say, you don't know my present. You don't know the things that I'm still struggling with. But here's what he says. Could, could confession alone really bring me forgiveness for my past, the things I'm going through my present, my sin? Here's what he says. He says that God, when we confess our sin, is faithful and righteous. Another word for that is he is faithful and just. That means that it would be wrong for him to not then forgive us. Instead, he is then faithful and just. It is an act of righteousness where he then forgives you of your sin. That means he, he washes away the debt, and then that shame that your soul feels from all those clinging sins and, and past regrets, he says that he can wash it all away. He can wash it away, guys. The things that you walked into this door holding on to, the things that are, that are preventing you from living a fully robust life of bold, righteous actions, from taking the steps of faith that God is calling to you because you have shame holding you back. He says he can cleanse you from all unrighteousness simply by doing what? By repenting. That's it. And he has just to do it because Jesus paid your debt. That is why for him to do anything else would be unjust. Because Jesus paid the debt for all that unrighteousness, for all that shame, for all that dirt, for all of your past, present, and future. Jesus, as we sing, he paid it all. All to him I owe, right? So what do you do now? Let me encourage you. If you have been walking with Christ and you are already his, but you have been persisting in sin, bring those to him now. Do not delay, but repent right now. Have that change of mark, heart, turn your uh, change of mind and turn your heart towards him. Repent of those things now. Lay them down before his cross and let him once again wash your conscience clean, wash your heart clean. And if you have not done that yet, laid your life fully down before him at his cross, accepting his work on your behalf and saying, I'm no longer living by my own rules. I, I, I am now living for him and I'm accepting what he has done for me. Do that today. Do not delay. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning, wherever we each might be as individuals in our spiritual paths, that you would help us to forsake the darkness of our sin and to walk in the light. Lord, if there are people here who have been living their whole lives in darkness and have not experienced the light and have not experienced that wiping away of their debt, that cleansing of all sin from their souls. Lord, 
And then I, I pray that you would penetrate their hearts by your spirit, Lord, to turn their hearts to you, that you would open them to be filled with your love, to see the, the, the magnificence of your grace and your mercy towards them, that you have paid it all by your work and there's no work left for them to do to receive that gift. Lord, let them experience that today and experience stepping into the light. And Lord, for your weary disciples and for your, your feeble and fickle children who have been dancing in and out of the light, who have been wandering into sin, Lord, then I pray for these as well. I pray for us, for myself. Touch us with the tenderness of your love. It's so easy for us to slide back into thinking that there's some work for us to do, that we've got to make up for it, that because of all you've done for us in the past, but we failed again. Now we've got to we've got to do something this time. We got we got to clean ourselves up, Lord. And so we're being held back from prayer. We're being held back from your word. We're being held back from obedience because we're letting that shame block us, Lord. But let us be reminded of the beautiful words of John that all we must do is confess. All we must do is confess. All we must do is repent, and it tears those walls down. Father, that you, that you are eager and that you are constantly pursuing us. And all we have to do to experience the reconciliation of your presence and the consolation that comes from you is to stop running, is to turn around and be embraced by your loving arms. So for all those who have been persisting in their sin, I pray these words, Lord. In the name of our Savior, who paid our debt once and for all, Jesus Christ.